0: Good evening, everyone. My name is Emma, for those whom I haven't met. Tonight, I'll be reading to you John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to that light. children not born of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning Him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known.
1: Let's take a moment to to pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just ask you to uh, just be with us now. Speak strongly to our hearts. uh, Keep away the distractions from our minds. And just pray, Lord, that we have humility to hear your word, but also be transformed by your word. And all God's people said, Amen. In the beginning, the baby girl from Alabama was as healthy as any other 19-month-old. Then during the winter of 1882, tragedies struck. In one of those horrible examples of unexplainable suffering, the baby girl developed a devastating fever. Fever which the doctor gave her no chance of recovering from. The little girl was a fighter though and when the fever did lift her parents joy quickly turned to grief. The baby girl could no longer see she was blind. She could no longer hear. She was deaf and because she had only learned a handful of words. She was left without the power of speech. Decades later, she described the next six years of her life as living at sea in a dense fog. In fact, she said the wordless cry of her soul was light. Give me light. Her desperate parents sought help everywhere and eventually hired a teacher named Anne Sutherland Sullivan, who was partly blind herself. She started by teaching the young girl to spell words over and over with her fingers. But frustratingly, the young girl was kept in the dark about something that we all take for granted, that everything has a name. Finally, after attention one morning over the difference between the words mug and water, the girl was led by Miss Sullivan to a water pump where her hands were thrust under the spout. 16 years later, in her own words, the girl recalled what happened next. As the cool stream gushed over one hand, Miss Sullivan spelled into the other wo- into the other the word water, first slowly and then rapidly. I stood still, my whole attention fixed upon the emotions of her fingers. Suddenly, I felt a misty consciousness as if something forgotten, a thrill of returning thought. And somehow the mystery of language was revealed to me. I knew then that w-a-t-e-r meant the wonderful cool something that was flowing over my hand. That living word awakened my soul, gave it light, hope, joy, and set it free. That young girl was Helen Keller. When she died in 1968, aged 88, Keller had authored 14 books, written more than 475 essays and speeches, and was an advocate for women and disability groups. She'd been released from her prison of darkness, thanks to the power of words. And that's why I love that very last line of hers. That living word awakened my soul Gave it light, hope, joy, and set it free. And if you've probably already guessed by now, it's the same kind of language that we've just read from our passage. And I can't help but wondering how much more powerful is the real living word, Jesus Christ himself, who rescues people from a much, much darker world. Well, friends, as we've seen, we're, we're exploring John 1 tonight. It's an incredible passage. It's a majestic passage. It points to so many wonderful truths contained in the rest of the gospel that I reckon as we read it, it needs one of those huge orchestral movie scores, something like the beginning of Star Wars. Because these 18 verses, just as they did 2,000 years ago, when John first wrote them, are supposed to awaken our souls, give us hope, joy and set us free. They're they're not only written to tell us who Jesus is, but to grow in our worship and our awe of Jesus. And here's why, humanity's great problem is that our view of Jesus is too small. We see him as a wise teacher or a good man, someone who loves all the time, About 20 years ago, 20 years ago, Australians were surveyed about what kind of Jesus they wanted and most said they wanted a guy they could have a beer with at the local pub. Now, Jesus is wise and he is good and he is compassionate, but the the danger is we can forget he is also all powerful, all encompassing. He is the God who deserves our full devotion and worship. And the reason why we have uh, a minuscule view of Jesus is because we have an enormous view of ourselves. Too often we turn that telescope around, don't we, and think that the universe revolves around us. We like having a small Jesus because it allows us to live comfortable lives, undisturbed lives, safe lives. We're scared of uh, a bigger Jesus because then we'll have to admit that we're not in control, that we don't get to make the rules, and that we'll have to put him first and spend more time with him rather than the stuff that we really, really love. Ultimately, we're afraid he'll ask us to radically change our life. But our passage is telling us this, Don't be afraid of a bigger Jesus. The bigger Jesus is in your life, the smaller your fears will be. The bigger the Jesus is in your life, the smaller your fears will be. And the opening of John's Gospel is asking you to trade in your postage stamp version of Jesus. Or even rip off the roof of your Sistine Chapel version of Jesus. For the majestic word of God who's bigger and more powerful then you realise. The God who imagined and shaped 2000 galaxies wants to rule your life in a way that frees you from the worries of the world. And tonight, to help us grow a bigger picture of Jesus, we're going to race through five simple truths about him from our passage. And the first one tonight is Jesus is divine. Straight away, we notice John Kicks off his gospel in a way completely different to the other gospel writers. Whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke start with the smaller brushstrokes of Jesus' virgin birth, John grabs this huge canvas and takes us right back to the beginning, the beginning, the birth of creation. Verse 1 In the beginning was the Word. And we're meant to to go, hey, wait a minute, where have I heard that before? And sure enough, we find ourselves time-traveling back to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, as 21st century people, we're used to hearing this verse. You know, you can go to Kurong and you can buy a mug with the verse on it. But can you imagine how scandalous that must have been to first century Jews? It places Jesus where God is meant to be, where God is meant to be, but importantly, the difference is it doesn't replace God. The word was with God and the word was God. Jesus isn't a mere man. He isn't a created being. Jesus isn't another God. He is God. He is eternal and he is divine, but he isn't alone. The Bible's pulling back the curtain to reveal not only the eternal divine nature of Jesus, but also one of the greatest hidden mysteries of them all, the Trinity, God, the Father, God, the Son and God, the Spirit, three distinct persons, yet the same God. Now, for most of us, when we, uh, including Christians, when we start talking about the Trinity, uh, people kind of bug out, don't they? They, you know, their eyes glaze, glaze over and they start thinking of three leaf clovers. But there's a a wonderful beauty here that we can overlook when we talk about the Trinity. It's It's a wonderful truth that we can all share in. God is a relational God. He always has been and he always will be. There is authority in him, there is purpose in him, and there is love in him. If you enter into that relationship with God, We, too, benefit from the same divine authority, purpose and love that's within them because it flows into us through Jesus. In other words, God doesn't just sit over us like he's some distant being looking over, you know, how well the ant farm is doing. He's inviting us into the most perfect relationship that exists under his authority that gives us purpose and an unstoppable, unending love. And we see this through the rest of the Gospels. He's invested in us and wants a relationship with us. No matter how big he is and how small we really are. We too aren't alone. And when you think about this, when you sit back and really think about it, it gives you an incredible confidence and security when you know the most powerful being has your back. So that's our first quick big picture of Jesus. He is divine. He wants us to share in the biggest, most loving relationship that exists. Second, our passage teaches us Jesus is the word. And it always always has confused me. Why is Jesus called the word? Why does it take 17 verses before even mentioning his name? Jesus. Remarkably, the Bible never actually tells us Jesus is called the word only three times here in verse one, again in verse 14, where the word became flesh, and then lastly, in Revelation 19, where Jesus is leading the armies of heaven. However, with a bit of detective work, we can sift through the clues. If the writer had said in the beginning was Jesus, then the goodness of God would be cast into doubt. Think about it for a moment when the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph, he says to call the child Jesus, which means what? Saviour or the one who will save his people from their sins. Problem was in the beginning, there was no sin. The writer here would be saying sin existed with God before creation, which is definitely not true. Likewise, if the writer had just written Jesus was God, then it would have been made God the father and God the son indistinguishable from each other. Or we would have lost the father. The best answer again takes us back to Genesis one. There we read not once, not twice, but nine times and God said. God speaks and his creation comes into being. He he doesn't need a cosmic version of, of Bunnings or IKEA. To put together the heavens and the earth, the the sky, um, the land, the seas, the day and the night. He just speaks and his will is done. So who carries out these orders? The word, the living word, God, the son. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Verse 3. One of the great thinkers of the church, John Calvin, says this The evangelist calls the Son of God the Word simply because, first, he is the eternal wisdom and will of God, and secondly, because he is the exact image of God's purpose. Just as men's speech is called the expression of their thoughts, so it is not inappropriate to say that God expresses himself to us by his speech or word. Or to put it another way, God the Father orders, God the Son carries out that order. Now you may be sitting there and thinking, well, so what? What's that got to do with me? The simple answer is this. Because Jesus is your creator, he knows exactly what you, his creation, needs. He feeds, protects and cares for you. But more than that, he he knows your hurts and your fears and your failures as well as your dreams and your desires and your loves. He also knows what the things that you really, really need rather than what you want. Because Jesus is in control of creation, he can do something and everything about those things on your behalf all the time. And let's admit it, it's hard to let go And fully trust gold, isn't it? Because the world keeps selling us an Oprah Winfrey kind of version of happiness. Be the best you, the powers within you, just do it. And it speaks loudly to our inner pride. Our default position is to rely on ourselves, our own power. And it might work for a little while, but in the long run, we all know what happens, how it all plays out, don't we? At some stage, we learn one of two things. First, that you can't get what you've always wanted, no matter how hard you try. Or second, what we've been striving for isn't worth it. And the result is we become bitter and blame everyone around us rather than ourselves. It's why we need to turn that telescope around again. We, we, we invite Jesus to provide for all our needs. If our Jesus is too small, then we mistake him as powerless. And God, by definition, isn't powerless. However, if we start to see Jesus as he truly is, God the Son, who is in control of everything, everything, then our fears shrink because our inner self-reliance shrinks as well. We hand over everything to Jesus and let him run the show, knowing that our divine loving God has only our best interests at heart. The word only has to say the word and it'll happen. The third truth is Jesus is life. If you've even just ever seen one of those amazing David Attenborough documentaries, you cannot help but be blown away at the abundance of life on our planet. You might be intrigued to learn how many living things exist on our planet right now, animals, plants, microbes, you name it. The answer is fascinating, we don't know. We can't know. Scientists predict that if you want to count every single living thing along with all the bacteria and fungi in the world, it would take at least 50 years. And even then you'd be counting more than 100 billion living microbes before studying on the animals and plants. But Jesus knows. As we've just learned, all things were made through him. All those 100 billion plus organisms that share our planet, planet, live and breathe only thanks to Jesus. We only breathe thanks to Jesus. Verse four, in him was life. In the original Greek, the word for life has a double emphasis. Life is both our physical existence today and our ongoing spiritual existence into the future. The physical and the spiritual, the today and the tomorrow. And this is illustrated later in the gospel when Jesus meets the woman at the well. Do you remember that scene? Uh, Jesus asks her for a drink, then confuses her by offering in return living water. And John four thirteen 14, 13 to 14 says this. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I will give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So how does this poor woman answer? Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She just doesn't get it. She doesn't understand what Jesus is saying. She only wants to satisfy her physical thirst, not her spiritual thirst. She only wants to satisfy her needs for today, not her more important and pressing eternal needs. Now, we can all sit back and say, well, how silly is she? But uh, she should know what he's talking about. But the truth is, if we're honest, we're all like her. We all live for today. We rarely let eternity break into our thoughts, let alone our lives. We've just got to think about how many hours we spend on say Netflix or Facebook or sport or gaming or shopping or the gym compared to reading our Bibles or in prayer. We watch other lives, we play other lives, and we worship other lives. But we invest so little of our own time on our spiritual lives, the lives where the greatest riches are found. And it comes as no surprise to so many of us that we carry around this emptiness within us. We're dry inside, nothing is replenishing us, nothing is nothing permanent at least. In March this year, the World Health Organisation reported that there was a 25% jump in anxiety and depression worldwide during the first COVID outbreak. People reported that they were worried about being lonely or infected or suffering or financial stress or, understandably, the death of a loved one. And what was the World Health Organization's solution to the problem? Throw more money at it. Now, why this is going, well, this will help some people. Ultimately, it doesn't answer the problem behind the problem. Why do I feel so afraid? And the answer is because we keep trusting in things that don't last. Life was never meant to be staring at screens forever or working to pay off a mortgage. It's about life in Jesus. So how do we do this? How do we change? It's very simple. We just shift back. We surrender our lives to Jesus. We surrender to him fully and wholeheartedly. We submerge ourselves in the same living waters over and over. That was given to the woman offered to the woman. And the wonderful thing is that we can keep on going back and back over and over again. When we're dry asking for mercy or for love or wisdom or guidance from Jesus. He will never stop offering that water those living waters. The only thing that stops us from surrendering to Christ in this way is if our view of ourselves is bigger than him. Pride stops us from seeking those living waters. But if we we acknowledge that Christ is bigger, much, much bigger, and much, much better, then all life will flow from him into our lives. It will take our fears and finally give us meaning physically and spiritually today and into the future. Our fourth truth follows on from this. Jesus is the light. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Again the writer wants us to remember those big booming words of Genesis 1 and God said let there be light. And it's a wonderful picture, isn't it? But is God lighting a match or a universe? By linking Jesus to Genesis 1, the writer is telling us Jesus' rival was just as big as that first universal act. Whereas before the creation there was a physical darkness, here, before the word became flesh, there was an overwhelming spiritual darkness. Now, as Westerners, we, we think we know what that means. You know, our culture is, is collapsing around us to a certain degree. Our, our universities, our schools, our government and some churches are going in a way that is completely uh, crazy. And 12, 12 years ago, however, I got a better taste of what spiritual darkness feels like when I travelled to Kathmandu in Nepal. And no matter where I went, I always had this sense uh, of bleakness. On street corners, there were hawkers who were trying to sell you any number of idols, including statues of Mary and Jesus. Every few meters, you could find shrines with food offerings or the, or the blood of animal sacrifices. There was a temple on a hill where hundreds of wild monkeys were treated as holy. At another temple, I watched as a, as a girl who was about five or six years old got presented to everyone and, and announced that she was a goddess and that everyone should worship uh. her. It's hard to to describe the feeling I had, but as I wandered around, the, the spiritual darkness there was almost physical. It creeps around you. It saps your joy. It leaves people living in fear. It carries with it the heaviness of death. The cry of your soul is the same as Keller. Light, give me light. And thankfully, I found little pockets of light in Kathmandu. Christians who were reflecting that light of Christ. The husband and the wife team who adopted 13 street kids to save them from a life of prostitution um, or their parents' drug habits. The man who had been saved by hearing the gospel while working as a cleaner at a Bible translation uh, organisation and who is now in charge of it. The pastor who had kept his doors open only months after a bomb had martyred seven of his congregations. They had seen the light of Christ in the darkness and now were reflecting that light back into their city. The 18th century American evangelist Dwight L. Moody once said this, we are told to let our light shine and if it does, we won't need to tell anybody it does. Lighthouses don't fire cannons to call attention to their shining. They just shine. Jesus is the light for all humanity he is our only light and it's such a great image because light warms light attracts and light stimulates life but light also reveals when you enter a completely darkened room that you've never been inside before what happens you're completely lost right You have no sense of where to go to or what to do. Only when a light is turned on does your ignorance disappear. Your fear disappears. And you can see where I'm heading with this. What was shapeless and meaningless suddenly becomes real and comprehensible. The bigger the light in your life, the more your fears shrink and your security grows. Unfortunately, we know from our own families, we know from our own neighbours, we know from our own city, we know from our country that most people choose to stay in the dark. They get a glimpse of Jesus's light, but they shrink away from it because they're afraid of what he reveals in them. And when it comes to our sins, we all prefer to keep them hidden deep inside us like bats in a cave. If we don't disturb them, sure, they'll they'll sleep and occasionally squawk, but the catch is they'll also grow in number and weigh heavily on your heart. And here's the thing, rather than being afraid of what Christ reveals in our hearts, embrace it, embrace the light, embrace Christ's promise of forgiveness. The Bible tells us to invite Jesus to shine his light into our lives, to shine his scriptures and Holy Spirit into every nook and cranny. And it's, he's not trying to make us feel worse about it, but to free us from that sin the shame, the guilt and the idols of this world. And that takes a big leap of faith to be vulnerable like that, to ask for help, especially if we're being used to being so self-reliant. But it takes a bigger Jesus whose grace and mercy are bigger than our sins to give us that assurance. Our fifth and final truth is Jesus is the glory. Verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John is doing something here that we may not see without a little help. He's saying that Jesus made his dwelling among us or literally he tabernacled among us. And a tabernacle is just a fancy name for a tent. Jesus pitched his tent and lived among us. It's harking back to the time of the Exodus when the Israelites were refugees in the wilderness and God would appear to them at his tent of meeting. It was where his presence and his glory would come together. So why is this important for us as 21st century people in view of verse 14? Well, simply God the Son stepped into his creation and lived among men as one of us. People saw his miracles and power of his divine nation, but also his human nature as an obedient and humble servant. God in the flesh was suddenly far, far more intimate with his people than any time in the wilderness or later his temple. John, Peter, James and the other disciples would sit down face to face with Jesus. They could break bread together. They could sail and walk and sing together. They could make stupid mistakes in his presence over and over and over again. They no longer cowered in fear as well. But here's something else worth noting about tabernacles that's alluded to here. God's tabernacle was the place where bulls and sheep were brought to be sacrificed for the punishment of people's sins. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Jesus himself became the sacrifice for people's sins on the cross. Jesus was ultimately glorified through Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. To our modern sophisticated, ears, We've lost the impact of this. We probably should be going back like the first century Jews who who heard this and found it earth shattering. Only priests could come near the tabernacle and only the high priest could enter the inner sanctum. To do otherwise risk death. When Moses, one of only two men in the Old Testament uh, that God called a friend asked to see God face to face. What did God say? I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. How liberating and how shocking it must have been to realise that people could actually meet God again in his presence, just like the Garden of Eden. It must have been a wonderful, wonderful experience which was celebrated among not only the early church but heaven as well. God himself became small for a short amount of time so that our love and adoration of him could grow bigger and bigger into eternity. Friends, let's, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for Jesus. We thank you, Lord God Almighty, that you come, came amongst us, you tabernacled amongst us, We thank you, Lord, that you just came to save a lost people. We thank you, Lord, that you are an amazing God, that you are the light, you are divine, you are so great and we are so small. We just pray, Lord, continue to transform our hearts, Lord, so that we aren't relying on ourselves, but fully and ultimately
0: on you. And all God's people said, Amen.